Let's pray. As we have just sung, O Lord, we now come before your word and submit ourselves to what you would have to say by your spirit. And we know that nothing can really change unless your spirit does indeed do that work in our hearts. So may we all have an open heart to receive with gladness what you have spoken to us as your people. And if there are any here today who do not know Christ, who have not been saved from their sin, would you open their heart and give them new life so that they might see the beauty of our Lord through his word. For Christ's sake, amen. I would invite you to open your Bible with me to Titus, Titus chapter 3. The title for this message is The Philanthropy That Changes Lives. I admit that's a little bit of an unusual title. We don't usually use that word philanthropy in the context of church life. Uh, Usually when we use that word, it's referring to someone who gives a lot of money to nonprofits. And this is not a a message on giving. Um, But the English word comes from the Greek word, which means or or which is philanthropia. You can see the connection there. Uh, And philanthropia simply means love of mankind, the love of mankind. And we see that word in verse 4 of chapter 3, where it says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. You could translate that verse more literally as, But when the kindness and the philanthropy of God our Savior appeared. And so using this original meaning of the word philanthropy, here's the point of this text and thus the point of this message. It is the philanthropy of God that changed our lives by bringing salvation and renewal for today and the hope of eternal life. And so as beneficiaries of the philanthropy of God, we are now to live as Christian philanthropists toward everyone around us. That's the message. Or to use the terms that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, in the same way that the Father loved us while we were His enemies, we are to love our enemies as well. And everyone around us. Well, in the last few messages, we've been walking through the heart of the letter, which is found in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Uh, Those verses, as we've said, really constitute a one-sentence summary of the Christian life and message. So if you're confused about what the Christian life is all about, or you're not sure what the Christian message is, I would encourage you to go back to those messages where you can uh, see what God's Word has to say Christianity is all about. But in the flow of the letter, that summary of the Christian life is sandwiched between chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. What led up to the summary statement there in verse 11 and 14 in chapter 2 is the personal character that those who have been saved and transformed by God should cultivate in their lives in various stages of life or stations of life. And what comes after that summary statement is a description of how Christians should now relate to others especially unbelievers, in light of the saving and transforming work of Christ. Now, I confess to you that as I was looking at the rest of Titus, trying to figure out how long is it going to take to finish this letter, I had every intention of walking through verses 1 through 8 this morning, but I realized in my preparation that I would only get through chapter or verse 2 today. So, Lord willing, we'll cover through verse 8 next time when I return to the pulpit in a couple weeks. But these two messages, the reason I wanted to cover both of them, or verses 1 through 8 together, is because the, the logic of the passage is first the command, and then the motivation for the command. And it's unfortunate that we have to separate those two, but that's where we are. You have an imperfect uh, pastor and and that's what we've done. So we will cover verses 1 and 2 today. And the main point 
really today, what was originally going to be a two-point message is now just a one-point message, and that is be a Christian philanthropist. Be a Christian philanthropist. But as we study today, keep ever present in your mind that the reason that we can and should be a Christian philanthropist is because we have been saved by a, by a philanthropic God, a God who has loved us to the uttermost. And we will study that more in depth next time. But before we consider what it means to be a Christian philanthropist, let's read the passage. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. The Apostle Paul writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal, renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. So we're going to see from verses 1 through 2 how to be a Christian philanthropist. Look back at verses 1 through 2. Remind them, he says, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. The word philanthropy is not in these verses, but I would submit to you that what it means to be a philanthropist, to be a lover of mankind, is defined by these terms here. In fact, you can see that readily if you consider what would be the opposite of living in these ways, right? The opposite of, of living as a Christian philanthropist is uh, to live as one who is rebellious against not only the government, but all authority. Uh, to be uh, an, uh, the opposite of a Christian philanthropist would be to, to be one who refuses to do good deeds to others. Uh, the opposite would be to be one who, uh, who is, is harsh, and who is uh, always ready to fight. Uh, someone who is constantly speaking negatively and slandering other people. Someone who's really uh, puffed up by who they think they are, and so they treat everyone else with contempt. I think we would all agree that if you knew someone who is characterized in those ways, you would say, man, that person hates people. <laughs> and that's exactly the point. The opposite of of this text is one who is a hater of persons. As it turns out, that description is really not all that far off from the reputation that the Cretans had. You remember in chapter 1, verse 2, when Paul quotes a prophet of their own saying, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. These were not folks who were known for their southern hospitality. Because of their reputation, they were people that you always looked at with suspicion because when a, whenever a Cretan saw an opportunity to do a good deed, what they really saw was an opportunity to take advantage of someone for their own benefit. This was true not only of the pagans in that culture, but even of the religious Jews on the island. Again, back in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, Paul writes, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers. And then, especially of those, those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. So when we read in chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, this description of how the beneficiaries of God's love should relate with others, it is in stark contrast to the pagan world and the religious world. In fact, being a hater 
is how Paul describes all people, as we saw in chapter 3, verse 3, there at the very end. Uh, in the New American Standard, those last couple statements are hateful and hating one another. The word hateful really uh, could be translated despicable. One who is hated, and then a one who hates others. Christians should be known for their love for mankind. Christians should be known as the most philanthropic people on the planet. So let's walk through this lifestyle of a Christian philanthropist. Since this letter is written directly to Titus and then indirectly to the church, the main verb in this text is the first word, and that is to remind. To remind. This is a, a present imperative that implies that Titus is supposed to be continually reminding the people in the church about these characteristics. Uh, this is not a one-and-done sermon that he's supposed to preach. Uh, that rather, this is to be a regular and consistent message in light of the challenge that it is to live it out. At the turn of every corner in life, there is a temptation to go back to the flesh and uh, to go back to old habits and to live by the flesh. And so we constantly need reminders to walk by the Spirit and not according to the flesh. And so what should Titus remind the church uh, and the people to do? What should we continually be reminded as the people of God? First, he says to obey those in authority. Look again, the first phrase of verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient. We'll take all of that together. The command there is simply stated and the interpretation is obvious. We are to submit to and obey not just the government, but all of those that God has put in authority over us. Paul uses two terms here, both rulers and authorities, again, implying that this doesn't just apply to the government. You know, you got to submit to your government, but, but you don't have to listen to your boss or your parents. No, but rather anyone whom God has put in a position of authority over you is someone whom you must obey. Whether that is the government, civil leaders, bosses, parents, teachers, whoever God has put over you, we are to submit to them and obey the verb to be subject there is the standard term that literally means to place yourself under authority. What we sometimes do is, is think of ourselves as above our authority or alongside our authority, but we obey them just because we don't want to get in trouble, right? But what he says is, no, mentally in your mind, put yourself positionally beneath them and recognize their God-given role as someone who can direct you within their sphere of authority. Now, it's interesting that as you uh, look at the word to be obedient or to obey, it's not the standard word that uh, is often used, which is conceptually, at least in our minds, synonymous with submission. Uh, this word does not, it, it does mean to obey, but it's in the same family of words as to be persuaded or to be convinced. In fact, it's the same word Peter used uh, when he was standing before the council in Jerusalem as they were trying to get him to stop preaching about Christ. And he said, we must obey God rather than men. Now, in that situation, there was a direct conflict between what God had commanded them to do to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and what man was commanding them to do to not proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Peter, convinced in his own mind that God has greater authority than mankind, said, we will not obey you, but rather we are convinced that we should obey the higher authority in this case. And so, using this term here in Titus, there's an implication that we're not simply to, to passively obey or even to reluctantly obey the authorities that are over us, but rather we are to do so actively affirming their proper role and position over us. Now, there's no indication as we study the historical background between uh, the Christians on the island of Crete at this time where Titus was serving there. There's no implication that there was a, a persecution that was being conducted by the government or even specifically by neighbors. 
Uh, the church was small but growing, and it seemed as though there was no perceived threat on the part of unbelievers as there was in Jerusalem. Uh, but this command to be subject and to obey the government and all authorities doesn't just apply in the happy days when everything is, is good and those in authority just kind of let you live freely. We actually find the same command to submit in Romans 13, where the same author, Paul, is writing to believers in Rome who are under the thumb of the Roman emperor, who himself was an excessively wicked man. And yet, even there, Paul writes this in Romans 13, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is the minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who does evil. So in that text, Paul lays out that the basis for Christian obedience to government is, is the very purpose of government, that is, to reward the good and to punish evildoers. But listen, he, he gives that exhortation and that explanation knowing that the Roman government had long since failed to fulfill their responsibility before God. Though justice was a declared value in Rome, and in some cases it was uh, exhibited, not unlike today, injustice was pervasive. Roman soldiers, for example, would often commit acts of injustice. They would mistreat people, even take money from people. When soldiers came to John the baptizer to, to be baptized, and and he was preaching a gospel of repentance and, and bearing fruits of repentance, the soldiers asked John, well, what should we do? How, how do we bear the fruits of repentance? And here's what he told them. Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Now, he would only say those things if those things were a pervasive problem and a reputation among soldiers. In fact, it's possible that when Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if someone uh, commands you to go one mile, go with him two miles, he may well have been referring to soldiers who would conscript a person uh, to carry something for them as they went from town to town. So again, when Scripture calls us to obey those in authority, it's in the, it's in the very context of an unjust society with unjust authorities. Now, there's no clearer passage on this than 1 Peter chapter 2. Keep your finger here and flip further to the, to the right to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter is written to believers scattered throughout Asia at a time when persecution from all sectors of society was on the rise. And Peter writes this letter to help the believers know how they can engage and respond to the hostile society. And so when it comes to the government, he writes this in 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Since Peter and Paul are both inspired by the same spirit, they had the same revelation of what is the purpose of government, and that is to reward those who do good and to punish evildoers. But whether or not the government faithfully exercises their authority towards those who are good and towards those who are evil, it is the responsibility of Christians to submit to that government, even if the government is persecuting them for doing good. 
believers are always to submit. In fact, look at how this is explicitly stated in verses 18 to 20. Slaves, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there when you, are, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. This right here is the radical nature of Christian living. Who in the world would demand and expect that you uh, submit to those, that you honor those, that you respect those who are harming you, who are mistreating you, who are treating you unjustly? Well, well, God does. God calls us to a radically different life. In fact, if you look at verse 19, where it says in the NAS, this finds favor, for this finds favor with God, literally, it says, this is grace. This is grace. If a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. And I think by that, at least part of what Peter means is it requires the all-sufficient grace of God to endure unjust suffering and yet still obey the authorities. The only exception to this calling to submit to authorities and rulers that can be biblically justified is when they command you to do something that is contrary to God's word, or when they prevent you from doing what God's word commands. Again, that's why Peter said to the Jerusalem council, we we must obey God rather than men, because what you're telling us to do is the opposite of what God tells us to do, and so we're going to go with what God says, because he is the greater authority. And so, wherever and whenever a human institution, a human authority, whether it's the government, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your parents or anybody else, if they tell you, or if there's a conflict between what God says and what they say, always go with what God says. But until then, we obey God by obeying those who are in authority over us. Now, over the last couple of years, we've seen this dynamic work itself out before our eyes in our nation. I mean, just a couple of years ago, it, we, we were watching in amazement as we saw people take over sections of cities, uh, kick out law enforcement, uh, cause great damage, disrupt the lives of businesses and those who live there, and construct for themselves a, a zone where they could self-rule. That was clearly a violation of this principle to submit to the governing authorities. And it was manifest to everyone that these were people who were doing that in part because they were in their heart hostile to God and had no interest in abiding by a godly standard. But recently, out of frustration for the government mandates that were being mandated and handed down, we witness people of a very different political perspective and very different worldviews from that first group cause significant disruption to transportation and, and, and supply chains. They blocked at least one border between Canada and the U.S. and came in conflict with law enforcement. And I'm sad to say that there were many Bible-believing Christians that cheered them on even though they were rebelling against the government for reasons that had nothing to do with what God had required. There seems to be in the world today an increased freedom to rebel against those that we don't like, especially the government. We know that we live in a hostile society. Paul wrote this in his last letter before his death. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Again, we just see this every day as we read the newspaper or watch the news or look at social media. These characteristics are played out before our eyes. As the people of God, we must be radically different. 
And that difference includes our response to the government, even when we don't like what the government is doing. That's the first demonstration of Christian philanthropy, that we are to be subject and obey the authorities that God has placed over us. Look at the second reminder back in Titus chapter 3. Now, the second reflection of what it means to be a Christian philanthropist. At the end of verse 3, we read, remind them to be ready for every good deed. To be ready for every good deed. This simply means that we must prepare, we must be prepared so that when an opportunity to do something good to someone else comes to our attention, we should have a heart that's been prepared to accomplish that good deed to the best of our ability. What Paul is calling for here is a heart attitude. Not necessarily that we stock up on supplies and food ready to give out at a moment's notice, though that might be helpful. But fundamentally, we have to be prepared in our heart. Because good deeds come in all shapes and sizes. They, they can be anything from a, a, a word of encouragement to co- or comfort to someone who's in distress. It can be providing a meal for someone who's in need, bringing groceries for someone who can't get out of the house. It could be accomplishing a project for someone who doesn't have the time or ability to do it. It could be shouldering someone's burden as they're suffering in life. Or it could be helping them learn how to shoulder their own burden. Good deeds usually come with some sort of sacrifice. They almost always require sacrifice in time. The the need to just stop what you're doing, focusing on your tasks and your responsibilities to focus on what is needed in this moment in this person's life. Sometimes they require sacrifices in money or possessions that I need to give of something that I have to minister to this person. And so preparing your heart to be ready for good deeds mean, means to set it in your mind that the reality, uh, setting in your mind the reality that all that you have, your time, your money, and your possessions, anything else, is not your own, but rather has been entrusted to you by a gracious God to be a steward of. And so when a need arises, your heart and your mind are prepared to take what is yours to bless another person in need. We won't take the time to look at it, but you can just think about the Good Samaritan whose heart was prepared for good deeds. So as they traveled on the road and they saw a need, they didn't have to deliberate. He didn't have to think about it. He immediately gave of his time, money, and possessions to care for someone in desperate need. I was reminded that it was three years ago this week that a a large group of us, I don't know, 30 or more of us were at the Leakes home, uh, ministering to them, accomplishing projects in and outside the house as Pastor Leak was battling with his health and there were just many things that he couldn't take care of. Our family had, o- had only been at the church for three months at that point and it was a great blessing and encouragement to see the body of Christ come together and meet the need of its pastor. And I've, I've seen that over the last three years, time and time and time again, not only for the leaks, but also for our family, for Pastor Allen's family, and also for many of you in your time of need. I love that about this church family. This is a, a family that is committed to serve and care for one another and love one another. But as we look at this text, I would point out that Paul is not narrowly speaking about doing good deeds for those in the church as important as that is. Here, he's really referring to doing good deeds to anyone you encounter in life, especially those who would count themselves to be your enemies. Paul writes this in Galatians 6.10, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We need to be ready for good deeds. I know that many of you have gone from working in an office to working at home. And so now you have, it seems, less opportunities to interact with coworkers, to hear what's going on in their lives. And those water cooler and coffee break conversations probably aren't happening anymore. But I would encourage you that in the the interactions that you do have, to be listening for ways that you can bless your coworkers. If you're a student in school, Be listening to the things that your fellow students say that might reflect a need in their life, whether it's a need for encouragement, 
or some material blessing that you can provide. We need to constantly be looking for opportunities to do good deeds. Those of you who work day after day with unbelievers have a a magnificent opportunity to do good deeds because you have the opportunity to be the kind of person that the unbeliever doesn't have elsewhere in their life. You see, when an unbeliever uh, expresses their difficulties and challenges and sorrows to their unbelieving friends, they're going to hear things like, man, that's a bummer. Sorry, man, that sounds tough. You're right. He's a bum. You need to leave that guy. They're not going to get much helpful counsel. They're not going to get much hope. They're not going to get much encouragement. But you, as a believer in Christ, have so much to offer. You can offer to meet with them and and listen and, and offer counsel and encouragement. You can write them a note just to let them know that you're praying for them, that you're grateful for them, and to offer help in whatever way they might need it. You can take them a meal, even if they don't need it, just to bless them and encourage them. You can give them a resource that will point them to Christ while also helping them think through the challenges that they're facing. You can even tell them that your church offers free counseling. You know, last week, Pastor Hardy said that in life, we're either coming out of a trial or in a trial, or about to move into a trial. And that really reflects the words of Job, who said, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. And Eliphaz, one of Job's friends, who otherwise was a bad counselor, was right when he said, man who is born of trouble, or excuse me, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Now what that means for you and me, as believers in Christ, who have the hope of Christ to offer is there are ample opportunities to do good deeds. We just need to be listening for the sound of crackling and looking for the sights of sparks in the lives of others to minister and bless those around us. A Christian philanthropist is characterized by submission to authorities, being prepared for good deeds, and third, by loving others, not destroying them. Loving others, not destroying them. A third reminder as to how we can live out the Christian philanthropy relates to our response to conflict. Look at verse 2. Paul says, Remind them to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. In a world where conflict is common because offense is easily taken and evil is repaid for evil, Christians have the opportunity to shine the grace and gentleness and peace of Christ. Notice what he says first there, to malign no one. The word malign is the word blaspheme. Blaspheme no one. And and to blaspheme means to speak falsely about someone to others. It means to speak about someone behind their back, voicing your negative opinions. Now, let's be honest. We all have opinions about people, right? There are those that we observe from a distance and form our opinion based on that uh, far observation. And there are those that are close to us about whom we make judgments as well. Now, as I thought about this, I can't think of a single time where I knew someone from a distance, really knew of them, and had, for whatever reason, a negative opinion about them. But once coming to know them personally maintained that same negative opinion. In every case I could think of, getting to know a person radically transformed my perspective and was encouraging as I got to know them. We make judgments about TV personalities or politicians or athletes or people on platforms based on snippets of information, clips of videos, And not only do we make judgments, but we voice those perceptions in our conversations uh, or we spread them on social media as if we actually know what that person is like. We create equations in our mind that go something like this. If an athlete is exceptional and successful and they're on my team, they must be a decent person and love their family and be a great guy to hang around. But if an athlete is excellent and successful and on my rival team, I might be able to 
appreciate his success or his, his uh, excellence, but he's probably a scoundrel, and I won't be surprised if he gets caught doing something bad. Or if a political commentator says a lot of things that I like consistently, they're a thoughtful, well-educated person. But if a commentator says things I don't like regularly, then they're just blind. I don't know where they went to school. There's something wrong with them. They can't see the world the way it really is. We do this on a personal level as well. Even in the church, we can make judgments about one another based on limited observations and become negatively disposed to someone without ever taking the time to get to know them. This is a problem in every church because it's a human problem. We make judgments about people because of our perceptions about their age or maturity, based on their circle of relationships, based on how quickly they rise to prominence, or simply on the fact that other people have negative views of them, so that must be true, and I'll adopt those things. And so we, we talk. We talk not to that person, but we talk with one another about that person. And we talk as if we all know that person, when in reality, none of us know that person. We all agree together about our perceptions, even though none of us has taken the time to establish a relationship with that person and discover if they might actually be a wonderful brother or sister in Christ. We do this inside the church. We do this outside the church. We do this with coworkers about our boss. Uh, We do this with fellow students about our teacher. We do this with neighbors about that one neighbor. We do this with family about that one uncle. At some point, a Christian needs to stand up and say, stop. Do you know that person? No. Do you know that person? No. Do you know that? Let's get to know them. Let's have them over for a meal. Let's find out about their, their life and their family and their loves and their joys and their sorrows. And let's stop maligning their character based on superficial information. How radical Christians can be if we refuse to blaspheme not only our brothers and sisters in Christ, but anyone else in the world. It's a beautiful demonstration of love when we treat people based on the fact that they are fellow image bearers of God. In James, we read the sad reality about the tongue. James writes, The tongue is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Indeed, this should not be. Slander is a very serious sin in Scripture. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Peter in 2 Peter 2.1 implies that when we slander and commit related sins, we actually hinder our receptivity to God's Word. He writes there, Therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow up in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Putting aside slander and all these other sins must be done if we are going to long for God's word. We should not deceive ourselves that we can malign others and still have a healthy appetite for God. And so I would remind you, beloved, let us malign no one. In contrast to maligning, Paul says here again in verse 2, remind them to be peaceable. To be peaceable. Literally, do not quarrel. We are to aim to pursue peace in our relationships. As Paul said in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Or in Romans 14, 19, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another's, of one another. 
Christians are those whose experience of God's love as we have been reconciled to God. Then as we look at the relationships around us, we then take that recipient and that the reception of God's love and the reconciliation, and then we exert that toward others. We love by pursuing reconciliation and not engaging in fighting. The Apostle John says in his epistle, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now to hate certainly means to have an angry disposition towards someone, to to wish evil to come upon that person. But it can also be to deem someone unworthy of your love unworthy of reconciliation, unworthy of being forgiven, unworthy of pursuing reconciliation and restoring a relationship. But God demonstrated His own love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. And so, we ought to, again, take the love that we have received while we were sinners and move toward those around us with whom we're in conflict. In that pursuit of peace, we must also, he says, be gentle, showing consideration for all men. The words gentle and consideration here at the end of verse 2 are an interesting choice of words because they're virtual synonyms from the perspective of what it looks like. If you saw someone behaving According to these terms, gentleness or consideration as they're translated here, you would probably see the exact same thing. And so that's, that's why translators often translate both words. In fact, they're both primarily, one of them exclusively translated as gentle or gentleness when they are used in Scripture. So in terms of their outward manifestation, they look the same. It is the heart attitude that actually distinguishes these two terms. The first term translated here, gentle, in one Greek dictionary is is defined as not insisting on every right or every law or custom. Not insisting on every right or every law or custom. And so alternative renderings would be a person is yielding, a person is tolerant. We live in this world, a a world that is full of sin in our hearts and in the hearts of others. The only way to maintain relationships with others that are healthy is not to compromise on the truth, but to allow for mistakes, for to allow for weaknesses, and to some degree for the sins of others. I mean, aren't you glad that the Lord is tolerant toward your weaknesses? I am. You you can't have a healthy marriage if you're not tolerant about each other's weaknesses. You can't have a a good relationship with your kids if if you don't tolerate the fact that sometimes they disobey. Without compromising objective truth, God's or God's moral standards, we can learn to love each other by enduring each other's weaknesses. And so having this attitude in the heart results in being gentle and not harsh toward one another. The other term here, showing all consideration or showing consideration for all men, would be defined this way. It is the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. The quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. We all know it when we see someone who is impressed by themselves. They'll treat others with contempt and harshness. They, they won't put up with those who don't measure up to their standard. They, they won't be patient when their directives aren't fulfilled according to their expectations. They'll demand that people speak to them according to their sense of self-importance. But we need to understand that every Christian is on the same level. We are all sinners saved by grace who have the undeserved privilege to serve 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And while there might be some authority structure that Christ has put in place in the life of the church, and there are differences and variances in the, in the kinds and, and qualities of gifts that we all have, those differences of authority or giftedness do not equate to levels of importance or value. Because every part in the body of Christ is of equal value and importance. And so as we love one another and interact with one another, we should be totally impressed with Christ and totally unimpressed with ourselves and then serve each other with humility. The amazing reality is that these two terms, again, translated here as gentleness and consideration, or not insisting on the letter of the law, not being overly impressed with one's self-importance, these two terms characterized Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 10.1, Paul wrote, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you, exhort you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Same terms, translated slightly differently. But isn't this amazing? Jesus, who is God, and as God, is the standard of His law, His moral standard, and He will judge all mankind in that final day where He will exert perfect justice. Yet while he lived on this earth, he did not go around correcting people of everything they did wrong. He tolerated the the weaknesses and the failures of others. He loved the stubborn and the hard-hearted disciples. He spent time with flagrant sinners. He touched people who were deemed untouchable because of their sin. He, He spoke with people who were deemed Uh, unworthy to be spoken to because of their sin. Now, he never compromised the truth. He never celebrated sin, but he loved on people. He also didn't walk around with uh, a sense uh, of self-importance where he was impressed by himself. On the one hand, he wasn't puffed up when he would have thousands of people gathering to, to hear him speak. On the other hand, he didn't get angry when those thousands of people would leave as if the disciples had done something wrong to scare people away. Now, he did get angry at the unbelief of the Pharisees, but that was because they were not believing in God and his word, not because he thought they didn't treat him as he deserved. Now, you can read in the Gospels and clearly see that Jesus was no pushover. He was not a compromiser. He spoke the truth and he said hard things to, pre- to people that caused them to turn away from him. But he treated everyone with respect and he loved everyone he spoke to. Such that when those who wanted to put him to death were devising their plan, they knew they couldn't do it out in the open because the crowds would turn on them because they loved Jesus. And the end result of his love was... He gave his life to take the penalty that we deserve. The philanthropy of God appeared, as it says in verse 4. The philanthropy of God that appeared is the person of Jesus who gave his own life for our benefit. He died so that we might live and be reconciled to God and one another. And so now... It is our privilege and our opportunity to to be so filled with the love of God that as we engage in life, as we interact with one another in the church and outside the church, in the home, in the workplace, in the school, in the community, that we get to show that love of God that is peaceable and gentle and considerate. Even in the face of injustice, Because Jesus exerted all of those qualities while he was being hated. Even in those final hours as he was falsely accused. As he was beaten and tortured and crucified. He continued to exert that love for mankind. And so we never find ourselves in a situation where we can make an excuse as if to say, yeah, the time for love is over. It never is. 
we must always love. And in doing that, we will show ourselves to be Christian philanthropists. Now, next time we'll look at verses 3 to 8 and celebrate the motivation that drives us and empowers us in being Christian philanthropists. But let's pray. As we pray, the men will come and prepare to distribute the Lord's Supper. Our God, as we reflect on this passage, we uh, ought to be convicted. Um, I know I am. I know there are ways in which my heart has rebelled against the government, even in recent months. I know there are ways in which I have not been ready to do good deeds, and there are ways in which I have not loved those that I'm in conflict with. And that is likely true of every person here. And so we're just so grateful that in Christ we have the forgiveness of our sins, that we're washed clean, and that we can move forward in freedom and grow in reflecting this character that you have uh, treated us with from, from your own character. Lord, help us as we live in this world, even this week, to look for opportunities to how we can shine that light of Christ. And we can, with joy, speak of why we have love in our heart, even toward those who are our enemies. Or as we transition now to the Lord's table, we uh, just want to humble ourselves before you as we reflect on the reality of Christ's death for us. Again, I pray, Lord, that if there, was, if there is any here, and I trust that there are, there always are, those who do not know Christ, either they, they know they don't know Christ or they're self-deceived. Lord, would you open their eyes? Would you cause them to see the beauty of Jesus, the one who loved them in their sin and gave his life that they might be forgiven and reconciled? Lord, for all of us who have trusted in Christ and received salvation, forgiveness of our sins and the hope of eternal life, allow us in this moment to celebrate and rejoice in our hearts and to remember once again what you have done for us. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen.